Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech and language pathologist, and Kate Hensler, developmental interventionist, will join us shortly. Today we have a great show planned. Um, I'm hoping <laughs> that all goes well with this. Uh, we have a caller who's calling in who's not quite here yet either to talk about questions she has with diagnosing or not diagnosing specific um, diagnoses when we're talking with toddlers and what a challenge that can be for those of us who work in early intervention and who uh, frequently encounter this challenge as we are working with families. So we're going to talk about that today. Um, We'll also be doing our sports segment for those of you who are wondering if Kate and I are going to mention college basketball, and we most certainly are. As soon as Kate gets on, I'm sure we'll have a lot to say about that. There she is. I'm on. Hello. Woohoo! You know what I have to say. <laughs> what do you have to say? Go Hoosiers? That's right. Woohoo! <laughs> we had a big game last night against Michigan where my husband graduated from Michigan, so needless to say it was one of those uh, exciting games. And we won at the buzzer by a point, and that made us the Big Ten champions. So, woohoo, go Hoosiers! And you're going to the tournament. You're going to your conference tournament in we person. Going to go. Yep, it's in Chicago next weekend. Can't wait. Yeah, if any listeners are going to be there, they should hold up a sign. Kate, where are you? <laughs> <laughs> they can meet you in person. That would freak you out a little bit. You're not even laughing about that. <laughs> I'm not sure I caught it. Oh, I was saying if any listener is there at the conference in Chicago, the conference tournament, they should hold up a sign that says, Kate, where are you? <laughs> Can you hear me? Are you yeah. cutting in and out? I think, Well, I'm in my car, and it, it, the Bluetooth stuff doesn't work very well. I'm going to be home in just a minute, and then I'll call in on the house phone. That sounds great. Well, I am very excited that um, you're getting to go to that. I am returning to the Southeast Conference Championship, but not quite as exciting for UK fans as it was last year. But we'll just see how it goes. Oh, boy, we'll go very well. You were very excited about the uh, the Florida. Uh, Kentucky game. That was a huge win for them, and good to see them play better and and get their mojo going. I know. Maybe it's going to all come together for that little team that struggled so much all at the right time of the year. We'll just have to see. But I'm excited about my upcoming weekend in Nashville with my family with that. So it's exciting that we both have little trips. So next Monday will be all about sports, our, our usual five-minute <laughs> sports will Go on a little further than usual, maybe. We'll just have to see how those tournaments go. I'm sure we have a number of listeners that would be glad when basketball's over. (laughs) Yeah, as our friend told us the last time we saw her a couple (laughs) weeks ago. Yeah, you can cut out that sports segment. Nope, not today, Kelly, not today. 
she's a U of L fan, so hey, cars are playing well too. Go cars! Go cars! We'll cheer for the local team too. There you go. If you live in this part of the world, college basketball is a big deal to nine out of ten people you meet. So there you go. All right, I'm trying to think if I have any other announcements before we get rolling with our topic. Our caller's not here yet, but what we're going to do about her is since I already have that email, we will just go ahead and hopefully she will join us when um, when she's available. And if not, she can just go back and listen to what we said about that. But before that, I want to remind all of our Listeners, that myei2.com is up and running, and that is the very best way to purchase therapy guides uh, because those will be automatically available to you rather than waiting for me to send you the password for the link to view the video and uh, to download the written therapy guides. So myei2.com is the way to get those in creating verbal routines is still selling like hotcakes, and I love that therapy guide. And if you've not checked that out, you're going to want to get in on that because that is a huge strategy that every parent of a late talker and that every therapist of uh, children who work with or children who have communication disorders should know how to implement and use verbal routines. It is huge, huge, huge. And I just want to remind um, our listeners of that. If you've not seen that yet, check that out. And, again, the new website address for that is my, like the pronoun, M-Y-E-I, for early intervention, to, the number two, .com. So check that out. All right, I think that our caller is on the line now. Hi, Leanne, are you there? Yes, I am. Yay, we're so glad you could join (laughs) us today. Thank you, me too. All right, Leanne has encountered a situation that we, and I've I've sort of talked about this a little bit at the very beginning of the show when neither of you were here yet, and I was in a little bit of a panic about how I was going to talk about all this all by myself. We all, as early interventionists, struggle with this, with do we tell a parent what we think a child's diagnosis is, or do we hold that information back? And do we just treat everything and talk about everything in terms of just a general speech language delay or expressive language delay or late talker or any kind of general term? Is it better just to address a child when he's one and two in those global terms or if we have a better, more specific name for what's going on with the child, is it better to share that diagnostic information with parents and kind of the pros and cons of what could happen? And so that's how I want to talk about your particular situation today, Leanne, because I think this is even more of a philosophical, it's not even really philosophical because it's something that we practically encounter in our careers, I want to talk about this rather than talking about the specific um, diagnosis. Do you know what I'm trying to say? And I should have talked yeah, to you about Yeah, and I love how you presented that because I think that is something that we come up as professionals where we do. We, do we speak generally or 
Do we? Right. I don't want to use the term over over educate slash frighten. <laughs> right. A lot of times, um, the first thing a parent wants to do is hop on the computer and research your technical term you may be presented. And, exactly. Um, and so I have a feeling us, that that happens. Yeah. You know. So tell us what happened with your specific situation. The reason that you emailed me or messaged me, however it came about. I think we were on Facebook, on TeachMeToTalk.com's Facebook page is how we communicated. So tell us about your specific situation what with what happened, and then we're going to talk about that in terms of not that particular diagnosis, but how we should think about that and handle it and approach it just from this general, do we diagnose or do we not diagnose? <laughs> Um, well, generally speaking, I've been seeing a kiddo who's about 30 months old, and mom's first chief complaint to me was everything he says sounds like meh. Could be mama sounds like meh. More sounds yeah. like meh. And mm-hmm. just in general, limited vowel. And, right. You know, so about after eight to nine weeks of therapy, we've got, you know, some decent word approximations, but obviously there are some that are blending together, representing different words, you know, um, and I guess, like, they want to see more rapid progress. Right. And they also requested, you know, they want to have um, a role in it, and they wanted to do exercises that would help this little guy's mechanism produce words more easily and things like that and so so they wanted some little motor exercises they wanted you to give them some mouth exercise homework right okay which i have no problem on their time and you know and um but the thing about it is is that kind of brought me to a crux where i needed to decide right i needed to tell them whether or not i truly saw this being beneficial because i wouldn't want them to waste or not waste, I shouldn't say that, invest so much time with sure. their child anticipating that this would have a positive outcome when if there was a potential diagnosis that would counteract this, I don't want them to, you know, have lost time or to have been going up the wrong hill. Exactly. Exactly. So, and I think you're um, so smart to think like that because I think a lot of parents, okay, there's some background noise going, so whoever's shuffling papers we can hear them. Oh, okay. It's me, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Okay, so I think you were really smart to even think about this because a lot of therapists who don't have your experience and your clinical kind of problem solving abilities, Leanne, might have heard that from a parent and just gone with it. And just thought, okay, if they want mouth exercises, I'm just gonna dig them out some mouth exercises. I am, you know, I'm just gonna go to the book and dig it out from grad school, or I'm going to Google it, or I'm gonna give them some talk tools, things they could buy from talk tools, or I'm going to, you know, they could have just gone with it that way and just thought, okay, this is what the parents want. That's what they, that's what they said they want. So I'm just gonna go ahead and go with that, regardless of my gut check feeling here, which is, hmm, that may not be any help to this particular child with what you were leaning towards diagnostically. So let me just say the very first thing that I think you did absolutely right is think 
about what strategies you would be recommending and then thinking, okay, it may not hurt the kid if he does these things, but it certainly may not help, and I don't want this family wasting any time doing something that may not help at all. So let me just applaud you for applying your clinical thinking skills and and again going with that because a lot of therapists I I've talked to them I've they've stopped me at conferences and said whoa whatever a parent wants to do that's what I'm on board with and and I do think that's wrong um, when you clearly have a reason not to support the direction that they wanted to go on the therapy so I think that was great so keep going with your story I just want to get that point in there. Thank you. I, it was hard, you know, and I, I think I had presented this possibility, but I went about it the more general route, as you mentioned earlier. But I don't right. think I made my point, or I don't think it was understood in the way that I had intended. To the parent. Yeah. So that, that's where I felt that I needed to do more education. And so that was hard, like actually deciding to send, what I did is I sent the website to the um, Kafana website, the Childhood Apraxia of Northern America website, and I just did the very general page on what is childhood apraxia speech. And um, I like the definition that they have there. I mean, it is, um, I can see how it would be overwhelming, but it's not too technical, and I liked that. And that's exactly where I felt. Right, right. Yeah, I felt that the family suddenly, their eyes were very opened suddenly um, to learning more. And I I think there was a better understanding. So I'm glad that I did. And also, I just feel like it helps them understand, you know, the, I hate to say the word scrolling, but this child literally kind of pulls any successful word in a situation, not always right. the right one, even though the receptive language skills are, are very strong. And so, and again, that's kind of a hallmark of, you know, said condition. Exactly. That, um, exactly. He's got, so he has some default words that he just, they just pop out no matter what his real intent is. You You have teased out that it's not that he doesn't understand language, it's just the little words that he is using just pop out no matter what he's trying to say. And why wouldn't you want to call that scrolling, Leanne? You said something very interesting. You said, I hate to use the term scrolling. Why would you not want to call it that? Um, well, because it kind of makes it seem like he doesn't really know what he's meaning to say. But um, recently, as I was working with him, we've been really trying to work um, on the word more. And literally, it's like a variety. It's like stabbing at a variety of vowels, and he's, you know what I mean. And um, sure. and it's 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 sad that it does not come so easy. You know? Yeah. And, and it literally kind of looks. I think with those those groping behaviors, it looks like you're just grabbing for anything. Right. And I think about that as he's. Um, you know, it just comes, it kind of short, uh, short circuits. He yeah. he says it without even meaning to say it. Uh, but now I understand what you mean by not wanting to say scrolling because you don't want to imply that he's, um, 
you don't want to imply that there's a receptive language component because there's clearly not with this little guy, right? Exactly. Okay. Okay, now I understand what you said that, yeah. And those default words really can look like, oh, the kid doesn't really know what he means, but really it's just that that the word that found its way to his little mouth, <laughs> that's what he said, whether he really meant to say that or not. And that's kind of how I explain that to parents. Okay, so you talk to the parent. You told them the reason that I don't, and after you figured out that they misunderstood or did not clearly get what you were saying with, I don't want to give you exercises because I think that his diagnosis, the information that we have about motor planning issues or childhood apraxia of speech would indicate that exercises will not be helpful. And so you told them that. And then they still didn't kind of get it. So then you sent them to a, the website, and they then were all ears and ready to listen to what you had to say. <laughs> yeah, and that, that kind of brings us nearly to the present moment in time. And um, I haven't, you know, I think a meeting will be coming soon as a team because, it, I, you know, it, it, it's a good idea to have everybody, right. and I'm not even really sure that all the other professionals on this case really understand what my concern is. And so, right. and I think if, if if they don't truly understand first and foremost what the suspected apraxia is, they right. can maybe kind of take um, some of those previous concerns we just discussed, you know, yeah. looking at it superficially. So I, um, I've had to do some education already with some other people on the team, um, I went out and, uh, as I had mentioned in my message to Laura, I purchased the book Speaking of Apraxia, and I, I received it about a week ago, and I'm about a third of the way through it, and it, it is a fantastic resource. So when the time is right, um, and I feel like, the, you know, the parents are receptively ready to look into a support resource like this, um, mm -hmm. I, think, I think that'll be a good place to start. Just because right. I think a lot of times parents are thinking, oh, it'll happen sometime between now and three because preschool is coming up and for sure by school. You know, I, I really do think a lot of families have that um, timeline of talking. Right, right. And um, that's a limited amount of time for me to make that kind of, you know, really create those kind of results. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Anyway, I guess my, my other point in my question um I've had a lot of different conflicting opinions, even among speech-language pathologists, of when we should even throw around these possible diagnoses. Right. And, uh, and I, I don't know if that's where your next point is going, but that's something that I am, I am, I'm really kind of baffled by. Like, there isn't a, an industry standard, granted, that wouldn't fit every case scenario anyway, but... There's um, not. And I went back today, I've spent the last hour or so on ASHA's website, and ASHA is the American Speech and Hearing Association, for those of you who are not speech pathologists, and that's our national um, credentialing organization for speech language pathologists, and ASHA puts out position papers about, oh, everything that would relate to our job <laughs> as speech language pathologists, and I went back and read or it's a long document, but I I did more than skimming, but I did not read it word for word 
for exactly what their position would be about when do we definitively diagnose this, when do we not? Because there's so much information that, that and people will say, you know, ASHA really discourages you from diagnosing uh, childhood apraxia of speech for any child under three. And actually, the position paper doesn't even really say that. It says that so many children in that infant-toddler period, which would be birth to three, that so many expressive disorders look alike, whether that's just the speech disorder or delay or just the language issue, that so many of those things in these early phases look so much alike that it that it really precludes a precise, specific diagnosis, but it really doesn't say her, you know, just outright, do not do it. But that, you know, as far as diagnosis is concerned, but that certainly has been the implication that um, we as speech pathologists have taken from that paper. The other thing that's really interesting to me about the practice speech position paper, and I have linked that on teachmetotalk.com's Facebook page, but I, I don't, you may not get to read that if you're not an ASHA member. So let me just say that. You can try it if you're not a speech pathologist or not a member of ASHA, but if you're coming up with a link that doesn't work, it's because you are not privy to that uh, page if you're not an ASHA member. But it really doesn't even, the, the position paper doesn't even give a clear-cut um, definition or clear-cut um, diagnostic criteria because apraxia really can vary and they and it can look different from child to child and certainly varies according mm-hmm. to the severity level and I think that's what you're trying to say is there's <laughs> not only do we not have a, a really good point of reference when to diagnose it, we don't even really have a good reference of exactly <laughs> when we can call it apraxia and when we can't. So that is really not even when, but what it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I know my own personal definition keeps evolving because I was, exactly. I remember being back in undergrad and I had a professor with 30 some years of experience who told the class that in her whole entire career felt that she had less, met less than a handful of children with a true apraxia. And, and how do you feel about that now, Leanne? <laughs> I have probably met five to ten, and I've been out of school for three years. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, by my standards. But, you know, maybe the more you see, the more you realize. And I do understand that there are, like, masking behaviors, you know, where – where it kind of looks like it. And I've had kids, like, by the end of their time in the early intervention program, they really, they kind of like it, as the Speaking of Apraxia book says, they graduate into a phonological disorder. Exactly. And I I completely agree with that, but um, a lot of those traditional signs of apraxia, I have seen in in more than just three, three, four children, you know. Me too. And for a long time, I really thought, okay, what is wrong with me? Because I can see motor planning issues when on paper, according to my, 
you know, old references from grad school and according to new references from people, I'm not supposed to be seeing this as much as I'm seeing it, yet here it is in living color. Mm-hmm. And this is what I've kind of decided about some some of these situations. When we read studies and when we read very academic information, it's really, they're, they're referring to how many ever hundreds of children were in their study or how, if they're comparing typical development to atypical development. And honestly, any anything can happen when you're looking at just one kid. And so, you know, although... Odds makers in Vegas would say you're not supposed to be able to see that many kids if it's supposed to be so rare. But in practical real life, a lot of those, a lot of our kids in early intervention have some of those earliest signs and symptoms of motor planning difficulties. Now, will they go on to mature and overcome some of that, especially since they've been in therapy? Goodness knows, I hope so, because that's why we do this job. But it is a little bit misleading, I think, when you read those numbers about how rare apraxia is supposed to be, yet we see those clinical signs a lot more than Absolutely. Yeah, it would lead us to believe. The other thing is, is I think when you get kind of good at treating a certain kind of kid, then service coordinators, even if they don't really mean to refer a lot of those same kinds of kids to you, they just kind of do. <laughs> And so I would end up with a lot of kids on my caseload that I felt like met that definition. Um, And so, again, you can't really second-guess yourself on a kid-per-kid basis. You've just got to line up what a kid is doing and what you're seeing and kind of forget about, but I shouldn't be seeing this as often because the numbers don't add up. You've got to just kind of put that to rest or else and I think also I've run into other people they say you know I treat symptoms not a diagnosis so then does the diagnosis even really matter and like you know I I don't I actually when I met you at your conference in November I became level one prompt trained I went out and I you know I was so interested in this and to learn more about apraxia, and I have some techniques now, you know, whether or not a child truly does have apraxia or not, I guess it doesn't really matter if my techniques are successful in meeting the goals I need to achieve. There you go. And that's the takeaway message. (laughs) It doesn't really matter what you call it. It just matters that we treat it in the right way and that children get better And that's the thing about taking a more, I don't want to say motor-based approach, because it's really not that. When we're signing and when we're getting kids to move and when we're, we're putting core vocabulary in place, that is an apraxia treatment plan and kind of some sensory things thrown in there too. But at the same time, that works for lots of kids. Mm-hmm. Regardless of what that end diagnosis you know ends up to be, and your other point about the author of speaking of practice, and again, I have not read her book, and I shared that with you. I have her book; she sent it to me. So grateful to that, Kate. She sent me two copies. I gave you one too. Have it. Oh. Read that. Have you read that yet? No. Yeah. No. 
haven't had time. It's basketball season. We haven't had time to do that. Uh, but she, it does make a good point in that some of our kids do get better, and then another therapist who sees them when they're five or six might say, well, no, he, he can't have a diagnosis of apraxia because I'm only seeing this, but these signs of phonological kinds of errors now. And to that I want to say, but you didn't see him when he was two or when he was three or you might have had a different opinion. And, again, thank goodness he got better because that's what we're all working for. So I don't think you can necessarily rule out progress as, you know, the indicator that it wasn't initially a motor planning issue. So that's just kind of my my take on that. But I do think we as clinicians, I mean, I have had it go either way in my career where I have diagnosed and then kind of, or even if it wasn't a formal diagnosis, just said, this is what I'm thinking, and then have it not go so well where a parent where, or get some blowback from other team members, as it sounds like that you might have done, Leanne. I don't know. That might have been too strong a word. Maybe you just talked about it. <laughs> Actually, there, they were unrelated people not involved with the case. I was kind of just trying to get opinions, you know. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, because I've been on teams, and, Kate, I know you have too, where, and it might not have been, you know, we're talking specifically today about your situation with a little, you know, a person, a little guy with apraxia or suspected apraxia. But this happens all the time with autism. You know, it happens any time I think we want to call something beyond speech-language delay or expressive language delay. I think any time we would want to have a more specific label we run the risk of, should I do this or not? And I certainly have been on teams where no one wants to talk about the, you know, the elephant in the room where it is painfully obvious to everyone that there is something more going on than developmental delay. And then no one wants to talk about it. And then, you know, a parent would ask me a direct question and I would kind of go there and talk about it, and then it go poorly after that because they weren't emotionally ready or their therapist were like your friends who say, no, we're not going to diagnose anything like that because they're too young. We're just going to keep going with therapy and see what happens. I've had it happen like that. I've had it happen where I have uh, not shared with parents for whatever reason, usually because I think they're not quite there yet. They haven't directly asked me. They're really, you know, there could be extraneous circumstances going on in their lives that I think I am not ready to share this with them, and they are not asking me point blank what is wrong, which I'm not going to share. And then they go get a diagnosis after three or from someone else, and then they'll come back and say, it's this, what's wrong with you, didn't you know, or why didn't you tell me, or you know, I've had it happen both ways where I've shared and then it not worked out so great personally for mom and dad after that or professionally for me or when I've not shared and it, you know, it's kind of come back. Or, you know, again, I think it just, it, there's no clear, um, there's no clear 
way to say I am always going to do it or I'm always not going to provide a diagnosis mm-hmm. because there can be so many different factors. And I've had it work out great and had it work out not so great by being <laughs> on either side of that position. Haven't you, Kate? Yes, and I'm even in a more tenuous position because I'm not even a speech therapist. So, you know, there you go. Um, even though, you know, and this is this is not something we discussed, Laura, but I'm just throwing this out here. Sometimes I do wonder that, um, and this is just me talking out loud, but if the research will bear this out, that that the, the uh, significance or the, the prevalence of apraxia is, in fact, increasing a bit. Um, I think that it seems to me it, it is, and and I don't know if there's really current research to document that, but I just think with autism, you know, a lot of kids on the spectrum do have some apraxic tendencies, and I just wonder in general if, in fact, maybe it isn't a little bit more significant than it was in the past. But Yeah, and I wonder that too. And the other thing is so many um, researchers, are not day-to-day clinicians. And I think that makes a big difference, too, when you're looking at children um, on paper, diagnostically, black and white, versus you're sitting in their living room or they come to see you in your office. It's just a lot different when you have that ongoing week-to-week relationship, too, and you're seeing them change and evolve, and it's more than a one-stop shop. And so I think that's a big difference between researchers and then clinicians to see a lot of children. And I also think that there's a big, and I think I started to talk about this before, but got sidetracked, you know, big surprise. But I also think there's a big difference with um, a lot of the studies are with older children and not infants and toddlers. And so if they were looking at children in the birth to three range, and a lot of people that are big names, even within, you know, that they specialize in apraxia, they don't see as many two-year-olds as we do right. because the parents aren't concerned about them. You know, at two, they're still thinking this is just a little, she's just a late talker. They're not really realizing, gosh, this could be a more chronic developmental issue, and so they don't go to see other people yet or really, you know, again, they just don't have access to the pool kids that we have. Does that I make sense? I think it's also difficult to have kind of jargon-like speech at that age that they kind of think it's typical. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think, that, I mean, I think there are a lot of different factors as to why we might feel differently about that than, say, a professor in a university setting who really, again, first of all, doesn't see the number of children that we see, and secondly, someone who might just have focused on older children and a two-year-old to them be the exception rather than someone's, you know, our main gigs with toddlers. So I think that's a difference, too, that a lot of people really don't think about or look at. The other thing with the research is that, uh, uh, and a lot of of definitions of apraxia really rule out any other 
uh, comorbidity or anything that could exist at the same time. So if a child, like Kate, you were saying, if their primary diagnosis is autism, they may be totally excluded from thinking about or even being included in a study about children with motor planning issues or childhood apraxia because they don't they already have another diagnosis. It certainly happens with kids with muscle tone issues. And I am shocked at the number of speech pathologists that I'll say in a conference, what's the diagnosis what's the speech diagnosis that we associate with uh muscle tone issues and people don't just scream out dysarthria. Now Leanne, you said you just worked for three years. Did y'all and so you're young, a lot younger than I am. <laughs> did you learn? Did y'all talk about dysarthria? Did you did you study about dysarthria? A Absolutely. Lot yeah, I had an okay. entire um, like a three hour night class called Motor Speech Disorders in grad school. So okay, and it was all on differential diagnosis. But I, I, I mean, honestly, I I've had a combination of both geriatrics and mostly peds since I graduated. So I don't know that I could, like, still – I think it's an ongoing, evolving idea of successful differential diagnosis, but at least – Oh, and so do I. And, and, please don't, and please don't think that I think I have that market covered because I have more miles on me. I do not. I'm just saying, when I ask that question – I don't hear people just kind of yelling that out. And so sometimes I think that we get scared as early interventionists to apply or to think about a diagnosis like dysarthria, which would be completely appropriate for our little guys that we know have muscle tone issues you know, like cerebral palsy or hypotonia or hypertonia, whatever the doctor has called it. You know, so again, I think sometimes we, as early interventionists, we try so hard to stick to something so general, like, you know, language delay, you know, that tells you really nothing about a kid, other than they're not talking yet, when we could look at something that's a little more specific. And I think that I think that's made a lot of therapists scared to call things what they are too, um, because they just get a little bit caught up in, boy, I need to keep this general. And a lot of times that comes from state programs who discourage you from making that differential diagnosis. Not that it would be easier to do if they said, have at it, go to it, call it what you want to. (laughs) But I do think that we get some authoritative pressure sometimes from state programs who want you to keep it really, really general. Kentucky's not so much that way. How is Illinois where you are? But for me, um, you know, honestly, I have only lived here a couple of years, so I okay. I don't, I can't fairly assess that. I think different states have different things. Indiana, Kate and I both worked um, in Indiana's early intervention program a long time ago, or late 90s, early 2000s, and they were really discouraging, I felt like, from a state level. Didn't you get that impression, Kate? Don't you remember that? To diagnose I, anything, that it I, had to be, you had to send send kids away for you know an intensive level evaluation. And I know people call that different things in different states. Some states call it the child study program. You know, it, to me, that's just when you send a child to a university setting or what 
other, you know, state center, state agency would give that kind of um, multidisciplinary assessment to a child and then walk away with a diagnosis. So some states really don't want any provider, regardless of what your discipline is. And, Kate, I know your particular situation, being a developmental interventionist, you feel like a lot of times you don't really want to go there at all, right? Or you Tell us how you feel about this. And this is the opinion portion of the show. I don't want anyone to know after this. Yeah, here's where I dig my own grave. Um, <laughs> you know, it really depends on case. Um, right whether or not I even go there using the terminology as far as trying to diagnose, not that I diagnose, but that I would even use the term specifically and say, and of course, first thing out of my mouth is, I'm not qualified to diagnose him or her, which of course I'm not. So that's a big disclaimer from the get-go. Sometimes I have found with some parents, um, you know, a variety of things. They can get, um, can be, more concerned about it than I think is probably reasonable or um, but then conversely I've had families that I felt like once they hear something that maybe gets them a little bit more committed to helping uh, do what it is I'm asking them to do with the kids so in a way that can be good because they're taking a little bit more seriously and it's like yep that'd be you know that's a good thing so uh, thankfully, I've never gotten myself into horrible trouble using the word, but <laughs> but yeah. um, I certainly could, and um, I, you know, try and do it cautiously and um, somewhat judiciously if I can. But you know, sometimes yeah. I just talk about all of the signs and symptoms without calling it anything. I might call it a motor planning problem of speech. I think could be that you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then you'll have parents who say, what does that mean? You know, yeah. or before you're, you've gotten your uh, car cranked, they giggled it. So the next right. time you go, they're saying, do you mean? Right. Da, 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 da. Yeah. And I Which in a way sometimes isn't bad again, like I said. Right. I do think sometimes it is, um, you know, something that parents kind of go, oh, okay, well, I'm going to commit a little bit more to mm-hmm. what it is. And those kids need that. You know, they really yeah. do. So, Yeah, and when I was talking about earlier that I've had it go either way, I please don't misunderstand that I'm saying that I have, you know, I've only had this happen with a handful of families where it's gone badly, you know, in 20 years. Right. So I don't want anybody to think, oh, no, that, you know, that's not what I'm saying. Those are just, you know, the families that I really remember and think about where I think, gosh, if I had handled it this way, I wonder what would have happened. And I treat, I have treated a lot of physicians' children, and that puts a whole nother level of complexity with do you diagnose or not diagnose? Do you <laughs> tell them, you know, that, and again, I think with, and I'm thinking of, you know, three or four families when I was planning the show today, of, and I was, you know, able to say, oh, gosh, remember this kid, you know, Kate, when I was talking to you about it, when I was talking to Johnny, and, and you know, with how things happened, and I think that's another situation that really calls for therapists to really kind of tease out those family dynamics and figure out, you know, 
if I say this, you know, let's just kind of think through this whole scenario. And I've had it certainly happen with physicians' children when I have either been more likely to give a speech diagnosis to some of those children because I thought that the parents really wanted that and needed that and it would be able to help them identify what's going on. Sometimes you give a diagnosis and it's almost like it's a relief because I am not crazy. This is not my imagination. I knew there was something more going on. Yeah, I've had some moms say, well, that's exactly what it is. You know what I mean? As soon as they go through it, they think, "Mm mm-hmm, that's it. And they do kind of like it because then they can tell the grandmothers or whoever's telling them, he'll talk when he's ready, you know. Yeah, (laughs) then they can address those He's ready, but it's not happening, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I've had had one with – I probably shouldn't give too many too much identifying information, but his both of his parents were in the medical field and where another team member said he's on the spectrum and the parents got really upset about it and then the other team member went on to say, And guess what, Laura thinks so too and then they came back to me with why didn't you tell me that you thought this so they felt betrayed and then mm-hmm. they spent the next five years of the kid's life looking for every person in the world that would say he's not on the spectrum. Still in kindergarten at seven years old in highly competitive, well, anyway, I mean, that can happen too. So even when you you think you've considered all the factors, there can still be some outcomes that that really take you by surprise. But this is kind of how I want to sum up this whole thing. And I don't want to make I don't want to make therapists scared to share information because my opinion about this is even if I'm not formally saying what I think the big diagnosis would be, what you said, Kate, I'm still sharing what I think about that kid with or without that label. I'm still sharing information. I'm still saying, hey, I think this is kind of a big deal. We all need to talk about this. I am really concerned that this is not just late talking. And that's that's the phrase I use a lot with families because it gets their attention, hopefully without creating too much alarm that, Kate, like you talked about, sometimes we need parents to commit a little more. And, Leanne, I think uh-huh. that's what you were hoping would happen with the family that you're working with is that they would get a little more on board with what you were telling them to do versus Mm -hmm. going out and finding other things that wouldn't work or that wouldn't be as applicable for your little guy. So I think sharing information is never, ever, ever a bad thing. Now, whether you're going (laughs) to... go on to, you know, some families you share information with and they don't really want to know more than that. They they really, without saying, I don't want to know, they kind of give you all the signals like, I am not ready for this. Please don't talk about it again. Keep doing therapy with my kid, but I can't hear what you're saying yet. And I think we have to respect that with parents. Kate, have you had that happen before with parents who just weren't ready yet? Absolutely. And I try very hard to just respect that, whether we're talking about autism or praxia or anything else. You know, I kind of put my feelers out there and then try and go with 
Although I do think there are times, just like with autism, you know, again, I can't diagnose them, but when they start asking, what do you think is going on? What are you thinking here? You know, I feel like it's our responsibility to say because they kind of need a framework for for how things are likely to go and what other, you know, the whole game plan. And I think having a, a diagnosis sometimes provides that. It should provide that, you know, and it does oftentimes. So, although it's touchy and I don't force parents to accept it, but I do hope that they're open to it, and if they are, then we go there. That's what I think, too. And, Leanne, that's why I think you did the right thing by this family, no matter what your other friends would tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Because you shared information that got them on a more productive path and Mm -hmm. got them to buy in a little bit more to what you were talking about and, and are getting them over the hump of thinking this lady's just going to be able to come in and fix them, and then she's going to, you know, she's going to take out her little magic speech to everyone, and he's going to be talking by the time we get home from work today because we end up here speech therapy. And you were feeling some of that pressure with clients yes. that more progress, even if they didn't say that outright. But when you, when you, if you had withheld that information, they may still be thinking, gosh, this is with her, rather than, ooh, there could potentially be something a little more serious going on with our baby than we thought. Mm-hmm. So I totally yeah. think you did the right thing. And well, thank you. Is, I appreciate that. I talk, it's really hard. You know, there are wonderful yeah. parts of our field, but there are these difficult conversations or the contemplations that we have within ourselves whether or not the time is right, the topic is right, the presentation is right. You know, there's always things that you can improve as a therapist, but, you know, I guess it's kind of the whole learn and and go forward, you know. It totally is. It continues to be hard, really. I mean, I think it's just you really have to weigh it out each situation and try and go with what feels, but, you know, it's always a little tenuous. (laughs) It is. And, you know, I I would feel um, I worry about people in any kind of medical role who say that that doesn't bother them anymore. You know, I worry about those kind of people because I think, gosh, you could really be not as compassionate and empathetic and um, real as a family needs you to be when this isn't as big a deal to you anymore. And when you forget that these are very real people, um, you know, and I say this in the conference, and I I mean, sometimes the information that we have to give parents, we are dream killers for a lot of parents because it's really the first time that they're hearing that this may not be something that's going to just go away overnight or the maturity won't fix or you know, and thankfully, most children do get better, and that is, oh gosh, again, another reason that we have the best job in early intervention because maturity does help us out so much. But at the same time, when things aren't going as smoothly and kids aren't making as much progress as we would like for them to make, you know, you do feel really terrible when you have to 
share that there are other factors that a parent maybe hasn't considered yet. But that's that. I mean, that's part of our job. That's the skilled part of our job. That's that's why we have extra education to teach us about all those other things, what those other possibilities might be diagnostically. But I don't think it really gets any easier to share that with the parent. And so, Lynn, that may never be <laughs> something that's completely comfortable, and that's okay because that's what's going to make you, again, um, I think, a better clinician and certainly a better match for parents, especially in early intervention when they are just um, maybe coming to the realization that things are not going as they would hope. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's ever a really bad thing. And I do think I don't think any clinician can really have a, a set policy with when I'm going to diagnose, when I'm not going to diagnose, because it's certainly family dynamics are huge, and I've had some families, again, that I, you know, I, I just feel like my policy is I share information. If they're ready to hear it, great. I'm there to help them. If they are giving me those subtle or even not so subtle signs that I can't take any more on my plate right now, I back off with those parents. It doesn't really change what I do for that child anyway. I'm going to just Treat those uh, symptoms and those characteristics that we're seeing and move forward. And when they're ready, we'll talk about it. But if they're not, I'm not a therapist. That that keeps kind of beating them over the head with it because from personal experience, that does not go well ever. (laughs) And so (laughs) we want to be sure (laughs) that we're still able to see these people in the grocery store and in Target and not want to run because we've totally blown it. You know, from right. a personal perspective, and I've seen that happen. And, and well, and I think earlier in my career too, Laura, I was a little bit more militant about, no, I've got to convince them. They've got to, you know, and I have softened on that, and just kind of think, I, you. like you said, you you discuss it, you put it out there. If they're not responsive or receptive, they can't, they're emotionally not ready to hear it, then back off and do what you were going to do anyway. Exactly. And sometimes it makes parents then so mad at you that they spend all of their time, like that previous example, with trying to prove you wrong, that their Uh energies are focused on the wrong thing. And you all need, Uh we need to keep everybody on the same page as much as we can. And Leanne, I love that you said that you were talking to the other team members and doing some education and really helping them along so that they may frame this little boy in a new light and look at him differently based on what you know and what you're seeing. And I think that's a big, I think that's a really big part too, is to get everybody working together. And again, sharing information is never, ever, ever wrong um, unless you're getting that, that big, you know, I can't go there yet from, from a parent. And you weren't getting that from them. Um, no, no, I just, I did, I just didn't know if it was a matter of understanding or presentation or, you know, what I, I just wanted to make sure, yeah, that um, we were all on the same page. Expectations were all the same, and right, you know. Well, tell us again how how this child's doing. Um, you know, more verbal than before, so I think that's a huge positive. You know, and actually trying to make it the right direction. Yeah, you're yeah I guess the only thing that throws me for a loop is that, 
none of these like functional word approximations are used very spontaneously. Almost everything is cued, and that's what's kind of that, throwing me okay. for a loop right now. You know, and what I would do, and the other thing that I think that you said, I may be confusing you with another email or another situation, is um, you're not, you don't really see him very often with the parents. He has a, a sitter, right? Yeah. So I think I would focus on helping them learn how to cue him better because the more he can imitate, the easier it's going to be for him to get more spontaneous. And he just may not have that level of, he may not have enough practice so that he is capable of using those words spontaneously yet because he's just he hasn't had enough mass practice to make that happen yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't know yeah. that. I'm just kind of assuming. <laughs> um, so that's probably, that may be where I would spend more of my time with them is helping them understand how they can get him to do what you can get him to do in sessions so that he, you know, gets kind of that, that overload so that he can use those words spontaneously. Because if he's just doing it with you, it may not happen for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. So now you have mom and dad in a better place for that because they know that this is something that's a little more serious than late talking. So, yeah. again, I think you're in a great a great situation with him. The other thing that I would do with him, and I think we talked about this in our back and forth, is do everything you can to make it really fun when you're there and um, not have a lot of expectations regarding behavior or anything other than you're going to set the stage for him to be able to talk and to um, use his words so that you can, again, kind of get him to the point where it's not so laborious so that he can carry that over a little bit better. Mm-hmm. How's, Maybe. how's that going, the fun part, the play part? Good. Uh, you know, I try and bring activities and things like that, um, you know, that are exciting. Bubbles are, are always a favorite. And yeah. Um, you know, I just think kind of, I mean, the enjoyment is there. I feel like the focus has improved a ton. That was originally kind of an issue, but that's not an issue to sit down, you know. um, Yeah, so I I don't worry about that as much anymore. It's just, honestly, I, and I'm getting so much imitation. Like, I'm I'm wonderfully pleased because at the beginning, that was, more of a battle where I think we were just understanding the concept of you can try and do this and and you will get reward. You know, like that whole concept of work. I always talk to my parents about that. That that's the kind of the biggest struggle with language is that kids learn that their words are powerful and they can have them meet their needs and wants. And you have to do um, I just, something to get something. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> now I think that lesson has really. Um, I mean, I, I think for the most part it's mastered. It's just not spontaneous, but at least it's there. I, I, I'm not getting a child that's shutting down on me or that's refusing to imitate me. I'm, I mean, I have that, and that is something yeah. that's so hard with so many different kids. <laughs> I know. The other thing is really a lot of kids with motor planning issues can't imitate at the beginning, and you have to make activities so motivating and so fun that they overcome that internal 
block, you know, whatever, you know, that initial motor planning that I always think they can't quite get over the hump. And again, Kate, do your little do your little thing. Do what you always say about kids with motor planning issues. My mantra about motor planning kids well, there are three things that that works. Have them really mad, really scared, or really excited. And I always go for excited because I don't like mad and scared isn't really very nice either. So I go for fun <laughs> and exciting, and it really does. I mean, that's when you can get them there. That's when you can get kind of that break that vice on <laughs> verbal imitation. You know, like, go for happy, go for fun. Yeah. They will have words before they know what they did. Yeah, and I think a lot of times we look at that almost as a negative or like a power struggle when usually if we go the other way with thinking, I am going to make it nearly impossible for this kid not to want what I'm doing, and it is going to be impossible for him not to try what I'm doing because I'm so much fun that it overcomes that I'm going to have to make him learn how to do it versus I'm going to set the situation where his little body can perform. And so I think that that that's kind of a thing that we have to think about and plan for and have a philosophy shift so that we're thinking about it in that way where I have to make it where he, he uh, you know, there's going to be very little room for him not to want to do it and not to be able to overcome it because I've really set the stage for him to be successful. And that takes a, a while to learn how to do too mm-hmm. with um, with little ones. So again, that's what makes it so fun to give up, get up in the morning and do our jobs <laughs> because it's not the same old thing every day. There is a level of, um, you know, where art meets science, where it's what we work on and what we know to do, but it's how we do it is a big, big part of the success with this job. So again, makes it worth it and why I'm, Still keeping on after 20 years of wanting, you know, to do it because it's it's a lot of fun. So, thank you for calling and sharing your experience today, Leanne. Oh, thank you for having me. I I appreciate all of the advice and the experience that you've shared today. It's, uh, oh, you're so welcome. And I again, let me just say, I think you did the right thing. I think you were completely right. And so you just ignore all those people who didn't think you did the right thing. I think that's <laughs> true. Thank you, Lauren Kate. I appreciate it. <laughs> okay. Call us back in a couple months and let us know how he's doing. Call us before he's three. We want to see we want to see how this story ends for you. All right, I will. Sounds good. You okay. guys take care. Keep up the great work. Thank you. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. All right, bye bye. Bye. All right, Kate. Well we're both gonna have a fun week of uh, next weekend with our continue our Basketball fan, best time of the year. Good luck to the Hoosiers. And the cats. And the cards. And the cards. Bye. Bye.